why don't we have a word of prayer, and then we'll get started this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this day, and we thank you, God, for the sunshine, for all the folks that have gathered here this morning, um, and we thank you, Father, for your love for us. We think of our brothers and sisters uh, in other churches and in our own church, Lord, that have lost loved ones recently, and so we lift them up to you, Father, um, knowing that you're well aware of all of it, and Lord, we rejoice that, um, that these loved ones are um, with you now, and we ask for you to comfort uh, and be merciful as the families continue to grieve and process through their loss, Lord, but, uh, but we may, may we never um, grieve as those who have no hope, Lord, because we have hope in Christ, and we praise you for that. Thank you for this time that we have to gather this morning, um, and um, we thank you for all your blessings in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, so I wanted to start this morning by looking at some passages of scripture. And so if you want to turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 34 in your Bibles, and just to kind of set this up a little bit, it's um, the account of the reign of King Josiah in Judah. And prior to his reign, his father, Ammon, who reigned, who did evil in the eyes of the Lord. You know this whole pattern in Scripture of the kings who mostly did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And, uh, however, there were a few that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. However, his father was not one, and his father... Before him, Manasseh was not one. Um, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. We saw things like uh, the sacrifice of their children to false gods in fire. They, the idol worship, the sorcery, the necromancy, um, setting up carved images in, in the house of the Lord. All kinds of terrible, terrible idolatry and disobedience going on. In, in fact, the Bible says that Manasseh led Judah and uh, the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. They were, they were more evil than the pagan nations. Um, <clears throat> and then Josiah, his grandson, became king. Uh, Manasseh's grandson became king. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In 2 Chronicles uh, 34, 3, says that for in the eighth year of his reign... While he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father, and in the twelfth year he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram, and the carved, and the metal images. And then skipping down to verse 7, it says, He broke down the altars and beat the ashram and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. And then Josiah is king for... 18 years when he orders that the house of the Lord be repaired, right? He, he makes preparation for that, uh, sending people to take care of this task under the high priest, Hilkiah. Um, and while this was taking place, uh, a stunning discovery is made. Uh, something is found that has been forgotten for many years. And if you look with me down in at 2 Chronicles 34, reading verses 14 through 19, while they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, 
Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Uh, Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king all that was committed to your servants they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was uh, found in the house of the Lord and have given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan, uh, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Did you notice that it was as if they had never even heard of this book? Uh, Shaphan said that the priest had given him a book. Uh, why did King Josiah respond the way he did and tear his clothing at the reading of the book? It's God's word. It had been lost. Yeah, they, they had not been reading the word of God. They had not been living by the word of God. Um, and, and moving down to verse 21, it says, For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us. This is uh, Josiah speaking. Because, of our because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. He was already doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord, tearing down all the, the idols, the, the ashram, and all those things, restoring uh, things to what they should be. And then this book is found, and just by the reading of that book, he realizes even more so how disobedient they had been. Um, and so he tore his clothes. And that was his response. And then what did Josiah do? He made sure to get the word to the people as well. If you look down in verses 29 through 31 in that chapter, it says, Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. So we're here to talk about the Reformation, which I know that's a Holy Spirit one, so I don't want to divert us too far. But it's interesting to note that Hezekiah was the last good king before Josiah. And after him, Manasseh was his son, and then Ammon was Hezekiah's grandson, and Josiah his great-grandson. Manasseh rules for 55 years. Ammon rules for two. So there's 60 years, roughly, between Hezekiah and Josiah. That's three generations. They knew the law in the days of Hezekiah. You can read in Second uh, Chronicles 29 and 30 how well they knew the law. So in three generations, the law had completely slipped away. Mm -hmm. And that shows how important it is from one generation to the next, how it is to important it is to pass the knowledge on. Absolutely. So Absolutely. As we will see today. Yeah. Yeah, the... It had been lost, and 
and he had, he had reigned 18 years before it was found. So you add that on top of that. Um, but the word of God here is, is reestablished as the authority in the lives of the people. And uh, a new commitment is made to live by it. And this wasn't the only time, even when we see an absence and then a return of the, of the word of God. After the Bab- Babylonian captivity and the rebuilding of the temple, the people called Ezra and said, bring out the book. Right? They had been in captivity for 70 years. Um, and when we see, then we see um, in Nehemiah 8, um, verses 5 and 6, and then 8 and 12, we see this account. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions um, and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. There's a whole account there of how the, even the people were sort of dismayed at this. And they, were, they had to be comforted by the leaders. This is a good thing, right? They were dismayed because it had been so long. Um, but here the people were calling out for it. Bring out the book. And, and so that's how we should be as Christians, as we desire the word of God. But we, we see throughout church history and even back to ancient history how the word of God has has kind of been there and then gone away and then come back and it's this this whole pattern it's not a good pattern um so without the word of god the people of god are lost they quickly fall away and have no truth to follow they're no longer benefiting from the power of the word of god to change and guide their lives and years go by and the people are plunged into more darkness until the word of god is restored and so just like ancient history, the rest of church history is marked by those periods of the absence of the word of God, followed by a renewal, a rediscovery, so to speak. And that's what we've seen and been looking at in, in the Middle Ages. Um, the, the covering over or veiling of the word of God from the people of God, because leaders of God's people have not done what's right in God's eyes. And now the light is beginning to shine. The word is beginning to to come about in people's lives. And a certain Latin phrase has been tied, probably forever, to the resurgence of the authority of Scripture uh, in, the, in the time of the Reformation. And the phrase describes at once the, the state of the church, the state that the church had been in, and a new beginning. And that phrase is post-tenebrous lux. Does anyone know what that means? You've heard that before? After darkness, light. Um, And just like the Old Testament Israelites, the restoring of the word of God would bring the church back into the light of truth and from a long period of darkness. And that's where things have been. And, And so things are changing. And last week we looked at how certain people, um, Waldo, Wycliffe, and Huss, had, been, had begun to try and reestablish the word of God as the only authority for God's church and not the Pope's. Um, Christ alone was the head of the church. Scripture alone was the church's authority. And translation work 
had begun, getting the word of God into the language um, of the people. And the idea that the common man could read and understand the Bible themselves was, was gaining ground. And these foundational ideas would lead to still others who would take things to the next level. And that brings us to the time of what is known as the Protestant Reformation um, that took place in the 16th century in Europe. And these events in church history would really change and shape what is believed and taught and practiced in the church as we know it today. We exist as a, as a Baptist church today because of the many people of God that stood for the authority of the word of God, uh, including in the face of um, mortal danger, um, the, to the threat of their lives, and many gave their lives for that cause. And there are three things in particular that we could say made the, the Reformation possible. And around 1450, a man named Johann Gutenberg changed the way and speed with which information could be made available to the people. Does anyone know what he did? Right, yeah, the printing press. Right? He invented the, the, the movable, ty movable type printing press. Um, and prior to this, how, how were written documents transferred? By hand. Yeah, everything had to be copied by hand. Um, that's a slow process. But now printed materials could be mass-produced and information traveled further and more quickly and into more hands, um, which doesn't turn out to be good for the Roman Catholic Church at the time. Um, we talked about the problems around the papal schism and all the corruption in the church. What resulted was, was more and more willingness from European monarchs to defy papal authority, which hadn't been the case in the past. Um, not that no one ever did defy them, but there's always this big this tie between the church leaders and the, the state heads. And now, and the popes had kind of wielded power over them by the threat of excommunication and those kinds of things. But now they, the popes had lost a lot of their authority and their reputation. And then you add in, um, and that's sort of the second thing that makes the Reformation possible is, is all the problems in the church um, and uh, sort of the degrading of the authority of the church. Um, and then the, the third thing is the rise of scholasticism. And Bubba had talked about that before. And humanism and, and the study of humanities, right? To, it leads to uh, more ancient literature uh, being studied, and especially the earliest manuscripts of the Bible. And this, of course, leads to the recovery and study of biblical Hebrew and Greek languages. Uh, that things are beginning to change. Things are beginning to be different than they, than they had ever been. Uh, and these are not the only things that made the Reformation possible, but they were major factors in setting the stage for what was to come. Like, all these sort of things come together um, and sort of a perfect storm um, at the time. And so things are, are uh, beginning to change. And I think if, as we already saw from when we started today from, the, from biblical history, when the word of God is restored and brought to bear on the lives of human beings, things begin to change, right? People's lives change, people change. 
Why is that? Why is it that the Word of God, simply having the Word of God, can make a change like this? What was that? Gives people hope, okay. What's that? Guidelines, okay, for sure. There, there you go. The, the Holy Spirit works through the Word of God. Right? That's what's going on. And it does the things you're talking about, but it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. When the Word of God is, is brought to people's lives, God does His work through His Word. And we look at Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, very familiar verses. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. Well, sometimes the word, um, the piercing word crushes sinners under their sin and they turn to God. Sometimes it hardens people against God. Either way, no creature is hidden from his sight. All are exposed. And this is what God was doing with his word in the lives of some, some key figures in church history. People who would have their hearts pierced by the living word of God and who would ultimately change the church forever. They would, they would reform the church under the authority of God's word and the headship of Christ. And these reformers knew that the real power behind um, what they were doing was the word of God. That was the real power. And we, we know that this is what they thought. It's evidenced by this quote. It says, um, all I have done is put forth, preach, and write the word of God. And apart from this, I have done nothing. It is the word that has done great things. I have done nothing. The word has done and achieved everything. Okay, and those words are from, from Martin Luther. Okay who also said, by the word, the earth has been subdued, by the word, the church has been saved, and by the word also, it shall be reestablished. They were, the reformers were absolutely committed to the authority of the word of God. The principle of sola scriptura, or scripture alone, is a way of summarizing the commitment of the reformers to two things regarding the word of God that scripture alone is authoritative, and that scripture is sufficient. Okay, these, are two things, these are two things that we have lost in our time. Um, and in other words, it's the authority that establishes what is to be believed and how one is to live. And as stated in the Geneva Conf Confession of 1536, we affirm that we desire to follow Scripture alone as the rule of faith and religion. Now, why would that be a problem at the time? Why would that kind of a confession be a problem? Right. Popes and tradition, right? We, so for them to, to make a statement like that... Um, is very problematic uh, because the popes and tradition were seen as that authority. They had all the control with the scriptures being in Latin. That's not the language of the people. They're able to control 
that people don't have the word of God, and now all of a sudden, things are changing. More and more people are going to have the word of God in their hands. And perhaps at the beginning, maybe they didn't take it, uh, the church leadership didn't take this as seriously as, as they should have. Maybe they thought it would just kind of go away. Uh, it didn't. Okay? When the word of God, again, comes to light, things change. People change. And the reformers didn't, you know, Bubba talked a lot about early on in our church history thing about creeds and, and confessions from earlier times and councils and those kinds of things. And the reformers didn't dismiss those things. We shouldn't think that they, they come along and have the word of God and now they dismiss those former creeds that the church had, um, had agreed to uh, on their stance on the word of God. They, they um, kept to those creeds, but what they affirmed was that those and anything else were subject to the authority of God. So again, if a creed is fine if it is subject to the word of God, if it states um, what the word of God states. And once the Bible began making its way into the language and the hands of the people, there was no stopping um, the Reformation that would take place in the church. And in uh, 1505, Martin Luther um, had been a law student. He's 21 years old. Um, he's out walking and found himself in a thunderstorm. And apparently the storm was so bad that he feared for his life. Um, I've never been in a storm like that where I feared for my life. But, uh, so apparently it's pretty bad. And he thought he was going to be killed. Um, he cries out to his patron saint and says, Saint Anne, spare me and I will become a monk. That was his, that was his cry. <laughs> I'll become a monk if you spare me. He didn't cry out to God, but to the, the saint, right? He survived. He kept his promise and um, entered the Augustinian monastery in the city of Erfurt, Germany. Um, Luther, from there, he, he goes on and he's, he suffers a lot under the weight of the threat of the wrath of God. He knew that he was a sinner. He knew he's a guilty sinner um, and he couldn't do anything to rid himself of this guilt. It continued to weigh on him for years. Um, and of course, being a uh, Roman Catholic, he worked very hard to try to earn God's favor, right? To try to, to earn, um, to please God through certain acts. Um, he would of course, worked very hard to pay for the punishment, <clears throat> punishment of his sin. Okay? He practiced self-asceticism, which is, you know, we know is, is a harshness to the body. People that treat their body harshly in, as sort of punishing themselves um, and try to please God. He slept without blankets. He fasted for long periods of time. Uh, and, and the things that he did to his body would eventually cause actual permanent health problems for him. Uh, he was so committed to, to that kind of life. And it's also said that he went to confession very often, so often because he, of this guilt, and he couldn't get rid of this guilt, and so he'd have to keep going and confessing all of his sin, every little thing. He'd go and confess. And if you can imagine going to confession so much that the priest says, stop coming, that was what was going on with him, right? He, 
he went so much that they're basically like, go away, come back when you've committed some real sins, right? But he knew, he knew that he was a wicked sinner, and that he could not get rid of that. Um, and sounding a lot like the Apostle Paul uh, in his self-assessment in, in Philippians 3, uh, Martin Luther said this, if ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, I would have been the monk, right? And if you remember in Philippians 3, that's how Paul talked about himself. All, he had this whole list of all of his human accomplishments, right? All the things he did to please God and hold up as, as some reason why God should accept him. And then ultimately Paul um, determines that all those things are, are rubbish. They're to be cast aside for, um, for knowing Christ, and that, so it's a similar thing here, and this, of course, is him later on looking back and, and describing his life as a monk, that he's basically followed all the rules. He, if you could get to heaven by that, he, that would have been him, okay? He's not saying you can get to heaven by that, but if you could, he would have been the one. At one point, he couldn't stop thinking about this phrase, this biblical phrase, the righteousness of God, and that just kind of ate away at him, the righteousness of God. And in, in Romans 1.17 in particular is where, is where he was looking. And he'd been teaching through the Psalms and through Romans, and over time God used his word, in particular that verse, to convert him. Right? He, he finally had come to the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his righteousness given to the one who comes in repentant faith. And it was a 10-year-long struggle with him through all of his own self-righteous efforts and um, trying to be made right with God by following the law, by, by doing good works, um, and it wasn't working. The guilt would not go away. His sin would not be dealt with, and it ate away at him for 10 years. But he kept on with the Word of God. And Luther wrote about his own conversion this way. He says, At last, meditating day and night, and by the mercy of God, I gave heed to the context of the words. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. Then I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. An entirely new side of the scriptures opened itself to me, and I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the loathing with which before I had hated the term, the righteousness of God. Thus that verse in Paul was for me truly the gate of paradise. Hey, he, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, he, he had come to a right understanding of the scripture. He had been bound up in that phrase, the righteousness of God, and uh, recognizing it himself as not living up to that standard but he didn't see in that passage the whole context until God opened his eyes and he saw it, that it is speaking of the righteousness of Christ that people need to be made right with God, to be seen as righteous before God, 
And once God opened his eyes, he describes it as, as the gates being flung open. Um, so it's a, a truly, I mean, it's a great conversion experience. And it's not that way for everyone. Of course, that's how everyone becomes a believer in Christ, right? Is because a recognition of the weight of sin, and there is no answer to that, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through the work of the Holy Spirit and the word of God, people come to faith in Christ. Bubba, you're going to add something. So the, the prevailing view of the church at that time was that in, in interpreting this verse was the righteousness of God wasn't the righteousness of Christ, but the condemning righteousness of God. And so that, that was the overarching cloud that everybody lived under. You were going to be burned away by the righteousness of God uh, because you could not meet up with that unless through the machinations of the church. And it wasn't the righteousness of Christ through which you could avoid that righteousness of God. And so Luther was just consumed by the fear of the fact that he would, no matter what he did, he couldn't confess enough. He confessed so much that at one point his confessor told him to stop confessing until he had sinned enough to actually confess something. So, but he was just living under this cloud of being unable to meet that righteousness, that condemning righteousness of God, at least as it was perceived at that time. And it, that what, Luke, what Hoyt's talking about is that he finally, cl it clicks in his head. It's not that condemning righteousness, but the, the forgiving righteousness of Christ. So that, that is going to lead him in, you know, to God. Yeah. It's true that God's standard is righteous perfection. So, so it's not wrong that that is the standard, but he wasn't recognizing that God is offering the righteousness of Christ as a gift um, and that it wasn't about you physically being so obedient that you became righteous on your own. And that's the weight of that. It's the pressure of all that. And the, therefore, the, the confession, the harshness to the body, the, all the things that people did, the desire to, uh, which we'll look at next, go so far as to pay money to somehow deal with your sin, um, which was a major issue for, for Martin Luther. Yes? Uh, their concept of imputation, you're talking about the, the righteousness of Christ that we believe is, is imputed to us, right? Theirs was more of a, I can't think of the word right now, uh, maybe you can help me. It was a semi-Pelagian view, but there's another word, it's not imputation, it's not it's infusion, is that what it is? Or there's like, it's like a mixing um, of the righteousness. In other words, part Christ, part me, right? I, I do need Christ's righteousness, but I have to do certain things, and that together then brings about salvation. They didn't have a concept of this being a complete gift of God the righteousness of Christ in that perfect life lived for us that we can't live. Uh, they didn't have that concept because there, there was always something that they had to do. And we know biblically that's not true. Biblically, no one is saved unless they have the righteousness of Christ. It has nothing to do with, with our works of so-called righteousness. Yeah. No, that's not what I'm thinking about. But that is a thing, but there's another word I can't think of right now. But anyway, I think that's 
correct me if I'm wrong, but that's kind of the idea. There was a, a combining of Christ's work. That's why it's hard if you're talking to a, a Roman Catholic, they'll, and if you say, you know, well, do you believe that um, you're saved by the righteousness of Christ? And, oh, yeah, yeah. But you have to kind of clarify because there's always that aspect of works that are added to that because it's not enough. I have to do my part in, in my salvation. So that's why it's important to clarify with people words and what they mean by what they say. Um, so by 1517, Luther was teaching at the University of Wittenberg in Saxony. And among other towns in the area around Wittenberg, um, there was someone going about by order of the church, selling indulgences. You guys remember we talked about indulgences and what those were, right? They're basically pardons that say, you know, if, if you are granted these, you'll have less time in, uh, in punishment for your sin, in purgatory, that kind of thing. And you could even purchase these things for other people, for loved ones, if you wanted them to have less time in purgatory. And so it became all about money, and, and so supposedly if you paid the money, time would be taken off the sentence of paying for sin, okay? And again, that comes from where would that, it's based on merit, where would that merit come from? Well, the treasury in heaven of Christ's excess merit and that of the saints, because in, in, in their view, not, not all Christians are saints, right? Only certain people are saints. But biblically, we know that as, as God's people, anyone who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, saved by God, is considered a saint, scripturally speaking. It doesn't mean perfect, right? We all know that to be the case. Um, but we are all considered to be saints. So, but they have this whole hierarchy of Christians up here, right? And then the, the other people. So, um, but this, this monk is Johann Tetzel, Tetzel sorry. Um, and he's going around selling indulgences, and he comes to the area where, where Martin Luther is at, and this is a problem. Uh, this, was, this angered Martin Luther. This is something that um, he couldn't just stand by and let happen. Um, and the selling of indulgences was uh, basically a source of income, right? All kinds of um, funds would come into the Pope and to the church, and lots of building, grand building projects taking place because of all the money flowing in from these indulgences. And you think about like what Bubba was talking about a minute ago, people going around living their lives under the, the kind of pressure, the wrath of God, the, the threats of um, if you don't live this way, you know, then you're going to hell, that kind of stuff. And there's nothing you can do, but if you pay money, so you can imagine people's desire to avoid time in purgatory or their desire for their loved ones to avoid time in purgatory would cause them to give money. And so the money poured in. And so Luther heard about this. He was extremely angered by it. So he wrote out a list of 95 arguments against uh, the abuses of indulgences. Um, and these things that he wrote out, these 95 things are known as the 95 theses more commonly. Um, 
and he wrote these in Latin and posted them to the door at the church at Wittenberg, which I think last week we talked about a little bit, that, that was, it was common, that it wasn't vandalism, it was a posting of something that was intended to be, to spark discussion um, in sort of an inside church debate about these issues. It wasn't his intention to spark reformation or, um, you know, controversy or anything like that. He wanted to have debate about the subject. Um, yes, Bubba. On a lighter note, he did that on October 31st, which is often celebrated as Reformation Day. Yes, not Halloween. My <laughs> wife grew up dressing up as Luther or Calvin or Zwingli or something on <laughs> Reformation Day. <laughs> I, you didn't pass out indulgences when people came to the door, did you? Okay. <laughs> Trick or treat. Right. Um, indulgent either way. Yes, indulgent either way, either way. True. A lot of candy to indulge in. Um, so, yeah, he posts these, these 95 theses. Um, and what was the problem with that? What, what happened with that? He wanted it to be an, sort of an interchurch debate, but what happened? Apart from him doing something. Trouble happened. It's true. Right, someone takes those and translates them into German, and we have the printing press, and one thing leads to another, and these things are copied and distributed, and not only in the area of Saxony, but in, um, in a lot of the surrounding regions. So very quickly, what he had put down as his... Um, arguments against the abuses and of indulgences, the abuses in the church, is all of a sudden now out in the people's language and in the people's hands. And he's saying things that people are already thinking, right? People know about the abuses in the church. They know what's going on, um, but no one really gives voice to this. And all of a sudden, what he, what he writes, and it gets put out there and it's, it's often referred to, this time is often referred to as the, the sort of spark that lit the Protestant Reformation, these, these 95 theses going out into the hands of the people um, because of Gutenberg's printing press. And it was a problem um, because, again, he's going against church leadership. He's going against the way things um, are. And, and initially, the... The Pope didn't, again, probably didn't take it seriously enough, thinking it would go away, um, or that it would be handled within um, the monastery where Martin Luther uh, was at, that, that they should deal with this. But it was too late. It's already, it's already going out. In, in July uh, 1519, Luther debated a man named Johann Eck on the topic of papal authority. Okay, again, a very serious subject because he is in opposition to that. Um, and Luther admitted that, that he admired the teachings of, Yo of John Huss. If you remember, we talked about him last week. So to, to say that you admire the teachings of someone who had been declared a heretic, um, not a good thing. Um, and in June 1520, Pope Leo X issues a decree 
um, that threatened to excommunicate Luther uh, if he didn't recant. It's kind of a popular thing. You, you, you espouse these beliefs that are against the church, and they tell you to recant. Uh, well, Luther refuses to uh, relinquish his views, and then he's excommunicated in 1521. He's subsequently summoned by um, Emperor Charles V to um, an imperial council called a diet. And maybe you've heard of the, the Diet of Worms. Uh, it's not about food, okay? Uh, and Luther arrives in April and is presented with a list of all the allegations against him, all the, the heresies that he had committed, um, and so he still refuses to recant. And he says there uh, <clears throat> at that council, Since then, your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply. I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me, amen. So, this is the kind of attitude that the Reformers had about the Scripture. And they're willing to go before councils and before leaders and not recant. Um, and so, a month later, uh, Luther is declared a notorious heretic, by the emperor, and of course this makes him a target. He makes him an outlaw. It puts his life in danger. And um, he had a, a friend, a, a political protector, so to speak, um, who was a prince in the Holy Roman Empire. His name was Frederick III, and also known as Frederick the Wise of Saxony. And knowing that Luther is in imminent danger, um, he sends men to go and kidnap Martin Luther and take him into hiding. And then Luther continues to, to write um, under a, a pseudonym, Squire George. Um, Luther spent most of the next year in Wartburg Castle where uh, he translated the New Testament from Greek into the German language, and that was completed in um, early 1522. Luther's German translation then would be influential uh, in the translation efforts of a man named William Tyndale, who I'm sure you've all heard. Um, he was translating the New Testament into English, and that was a task completed in 1525. So these things, we see these things all connected. All the work, the translation work that people are doing are, are getting to other people. Um, this is becoming more and more popular. Again, the idea is that the word of God is the authority, and we need to get that to God's people. Um, and so we see their commitment to the authority of Scripture and the refusal to waver uh, in, in their commitment, even when threatened by, by leadership. Um, and that same conviction motivated his own translation efforts um, because he recognized the need to make Scripture available to the common people. Um, and also, we see during the time of the Reformation that other aspects of the Word of God are clarified, uh, and one of them being the gospel itself, um, that 
because of their commitment to the authority of Scripture, um, the, the reformers during, during this time, um, they would deal with doctrines like justification. And there's, of course, confusion and distortion about justification. Um, and the Catholics saw justification as a gradual process, um, which took sinners a while. It was a, it was a process, a long period of time, where um, uh, it involved both God's grace and the sinner's efforts to perform good works, what I was talking about a little bit ago. Um, and part of the confusion about justification is due to the Latin translation itself. Uh, interestingly, that the, the Latin term uh, for that could mean to make righteous. Um, and it did lend itself toward uh, uh, the idea of a process, a, a process of justification. Um, but the Greek term means to declare righteous. What is, the, what is the difference in that? What is the difference between to make righteous or to declare righteous? Immediate, one time, right, right. It it the idea of declaring righteous um, speaks of a judicial verdict, right, uh, issued at a moment in time, not a not a process. Um, and with the dis- rediscovery of biblical Greek, the reformers were careful to take care of some of these erroneous beliefs around subjects like justification. Uh, being a, a process um, rather than it, that it is a, a divine pardon, right, issued at a moment, a conversion, uh, where God declares a sinner righteous. And w- God doesn't declare sinners righteous because they did certain things, right? They're, they're clarifying this. They're righteous or justified based on the atoning work of Jesus Christ and the imputation of His righteousness. That's how, biblically speaking, that's how people become Christians. That's how people um, are justified before God, is because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. So, these things are being clarified, and of course, these go against uh, the teachings of the church. Um, so, so, the Reformers start teaching that believers are saved by grace alone. Now, for us, that doesn't sound foreign, right? I mean, we we preach about that. We talk about that. Uh, these, are, these are things that have been hidden, right? They're, they're now coming to light that, that believers are saved by grace alone and, and through faith alone in the person and work of Christ alone and, of course, for the glory of God alone. Um, and so they, they recognize the importance of repentance. Um, but the Reformers clearly saw good works as fruit, right? They saw it as the, the natural result of salvation in a person, not the cause of salvation in a person. Um, this is very different than what the church had been teaching. So, he distinguishes um, the biblical gospel from Roman Catholic teaching, okay, which again, it's just continually put, putting a target on your back. Um, he differentiated between uh, what was called the theology of the cross, um, which would be the biblical view, and the theology of glory, which would be the, the Roman view. Um, and so to explain those, the theology of the cross emphasized that human beings can do nothing to earn their own righteousness before God, nor can they add anything 
to the righteousness uh, provided for them through Christ. Any righteousness given to them comes from outside them. It is an alien righteousness. Again, which Paul, Paul writes about in several places in the Scripture. Um, on the other hand, the theology of glory, as, and this is what Luther called it, uh, it taught that even after the fall, there remained some ability in sinful people to achieve their own righteousness before God. This view implied that part of the credit or glory for salvation belongs to the sinner. Luther and his fellow reformers rejected this and rightly insisted that all the glory for salvation belongs to God alone. And you'd think that shouldn't be controversial, right? To want to give God the glory for salvation should not be controversial. But it was. So, um, regarding the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone, Martin Luther said this, Through faith in Christ, therefore, Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness, and all that he has becomes ours. Rather, he himself becomes ours. This is an infinite righteousness, and one that swallows up all sin in a moment, for it is impossible that sin should exist in Christ. On the contrary, he who trusts in Christ exists in Christ. He is one with Christ, having the same righteousness as he. Um, again, these shouldn't be controversial statements. Um, I found it very interesting to read these quotes from, from Luther and from others, and just thinking about their, the time was so different. Back then. This is a, a violent time. It's a, a very difficult time to be living in the world. Um, and so for these people to stand on the authority of the Word of God and to be as committed as they were to speaking out about it um, is they're, they're definitely transformed by the Word of God. People don't do this for something that's a lie or for something that's, uh, that's made up. You don't put your life on the line for those kinds of things. And that's what they were doing. They were so committed to, to the Word of God. And, they, and we should learn from this as well and, and think about, again, as we go through church history of the impact that these people had on the church then that has this ripple effect moving forward into what, what we know as church today and how we, how we believe the scriptures and how we view the authority of scripture um, and how we, uh, wh- how we do church. Um, all comes out of this, this time period. Without the reformers doing what they did, you know, we'd still be, we'd be a Roman Catholic church. We'd be still believing wrongly. The scriptures would still be veiled to us. We wouldn't have the word of God in our hands. Um, and so God has used these people, sinful as they were, to, to bring about reform in his church, to bring, a, to bring the word of God back uh, and take the church from a period of darkness to a period of light and growth and um, being right with God again. Was there another question back there? Right. Right. It's true. And we don't have to think about that because church authorities are 
trying to squelch us or something, but government authorities. Now, we, we're going to see that in, as time goes by, more and more, the word of God is going to be seen as hate speech. And so, again, the church will be faced with, you know, what am I going to use as my authority? What the state says, what the media says, what the world says, or am I going to, even in the face of danger or imprisonment or whatever it may be, am I going to stand on the authority of the word of God? And so we will. We will have to make those decisions. Um, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing that we would be given graciously by God opportunities to stand on the truth of his word and to trust him with, with our very lives. And that's what people did back then. And there's so much more. I didn't really even get, up, get through all of it, so, but we have to stop for now. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, first, just in keeping with my book recommendations that I did earlier in the class, if anyone is interested, I would strongly encourage people to read Luther's book, The Bondage of the Will. Mm -hmm. I think we have a copy of it in the church library, and if we don't, we should. So it, it's fantastic. Um, second, and Hoyt referenced this, but uh, the clarion call of the Reformation is going to come down to what we call the five solas. And there's, there were first, there were three solas, and then as the Reformation progressed, there were two added to it. And so those are sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christus, and sola dea gloria, which are by scripture alone, by grace alone, by faith alone, by Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone. And so those, those solas are still very much the clarion call of this church. So something that we should all be familiar with. Right. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're out of time, so we'll have to pick it up next time. So let me close us in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you again for this, this time that we have. Thank you, Lord, for your church. Lord, that you've, you've always had a remnant. And we thank you for the resurgence of and the recovery of your word in the 16th century. Um, Lord, that has changed so much. And it's not because people changed it. It's because you change people. And because you do your powerful work through your mighty word. And God, we are forever grateful for that. Not only for how you have preserved it and preserved your church, but Lord, how you have saved us as lost sinners through the power of the gospel. Lord, we're so grateful. Lord, help us, strengthen us in our own time to be faithful to your word, to be willing to stand on the truth of your word and, and not waver. Lord, we ask for your strength for, or we would not be able to do that on our own. Uh, use us how you will, Lord, for your glory. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.